Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Not Safe for Wonks. We're back at it again with another beautiful day. The sun is shining most places. The weather's been a little unpredictable, though, uh, what with climate change. But, uh, you know, hopefully where you are, it's a beautiful day. You're listening to this and just enjoying some nice weather somewhere. Amy, are you enjoying some nice weather somewhere? Out here in the mountains, it is just about 50 degrees and um, quite breezy, but very sunny. And the plants are happy. Flowers are blooming, at least, right? Some of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My pansies made it through the last frosts, so I, I, I'm blessed in that way. For those of you who listen to the audio show and don't watch the video show very much, Amy has been one of our producers for several months now, and she's also been helping with the content occasionally. We thought it'd be perfect to have Amy co-host this episode because Amy helped get this guest, and our guest today is a North Carolina guest, Chelsea from Down Home NC, here to talk about Down Home NC, what kind of organizing they do, etc. Chelsea, thank you so much for coming today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me and Amy. Thanks for setting this up. Yeah, it's uh, it's beautiful outside, but it is a little bit chilly. I'm not too far out from Amy, just in some of the more southwest mountain side of North Carolina. So, yeah, Chelsea, again, thank you so much for taking the time for our listeners out there with no idea what down home North Carolina down home NC gets up to what this org is about. Would you just briefly introduce yourself and the org a little bit? Yeah. So again, my name's Chelsea. I my technical role is the distributed organizing manager with Down Home North Carolina, and we're an organization that was founded on the belief that small towns and rural areas cannot be ignored if we want to see significant progressive change at the state and national level. And so, through deep organizing and leadership development and multiracial movement building, we work to build a permanent infrastructure that amplifies the voices and power of rural working folks and the issues that impact our lives on a daily basis. And the core purpose of our work is to really empower multiracial, rural, low-income communities to make their voices heard wherever decisions are made that are impacting their lives. And so we currently have like physical chapters that are being organized in five counties across the state, but we know that there are actually hundreds of thousands of folks in rural communities across North Carolina that are ready to build their power. And so that's what we are aiming to do. So I think a lot of times when people online who maybe have lived their whole lives in the city think about rural voters, they tend to think of extremely conservative values. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, there is a shred of truth to some of that perception, but it's definitely not as true as people tend to think if they've never been around rural people, been in a rural place. Where do you think that perception comes from? And then contrast it with, What's the actual like average rural community's political makeup? Oh my gosh, a lot to unpack here. So where does that image come from? Well, for one, I mean, I think what you mentioned around like there is a shred of truth in it. I want to start with addressing like where does that truth come from and why is it that we see this heavily conservative tendency in these rural communities? And you know, I grew up out here in Western North Carolina. I call myself a proud Appalachian woman. And I was really raised in what has now become like the heart of Trump land or what folks see as Trump land, right? And so when I got into community, 
community organizing, I, I was politicized through the electoral process. So I came of age during the Obama presidency, and that was kind of the first time that I, I had ever been uh, woke, per se, to the political process. And being in deep Western North Carolina, a rural community, as I was doing lots of organizing on behalf of the Democratic Party, I started to notice that they actually didn't give us any more reason to vote for them than the Republican Party. And when in 2016, for example, when the Hillary Clinton campaign was out in our communities during early voting and was supposed to be knocking on doors, they sent their community organizers at that time out of turf away from Western North Carolina, leaving teens, like more than 10 counties, just untouched during early voting. And when they were confronted about this by me, I was told verbatim, it's not worth our time for you to knock on doors out there. And so I think that that shred of truth that you mentioned comes from these communities truly feeling like they don't matter to folks. And I think that the Republican Party and the alt-right in particular has done a really good job at capitalizing on the anger that comes from feeling like we don't matter and like we don't have any dignity or any worth or any autonomy. And then to address the other part of that question, which is why is there an image that folks in rural communities are backwoods and vote against their best interest and are racist and bigoted. I think that there's a very intentional image that has been painted about rural, in particular, poor white folks in the same way that there have been intentional images painted about black and brown folks in order to prevent us from working together to build a multiracial block of power, right? And I think that the more that we paint poor white folks as bigoted, racist, bad people, the more defensiveness is raised around their real anger and real suffering from having been exploited by a racist capitalist system. Well, let's dig in there for a second, because the changing of minds, I think, is something that has been, or the, the integration of perspectives, you know, getting people to pull your way, that's something that's been neglected, I think, recently. Mm-hmm in the discourse. And where do you get success with that strategy? What techniques get you some success in getting interest in the in rural North Carolina? Well, I want to start answering this question by kind of touching on the last piece of Kennedy's question before too, which is what are we seeing as the truth of the political ideology across rural communities? So what is the actual reality of the minds that we are changing, right, Amy? And so, you know, when we got started in Down Home, it was in 2017, and we started by doing a community listening project where we knocked on doors. We did not do any targeting based on ideology or education or anything like that. We simply wanted to talk to as many people as possible. And we wanted to have conversations that were open-ended and allowed us to get curious and probe folks on their real lived experiences as well as their perspective on the world and where there were overlaps and where there maybe were some contradictions or cognitive dissonances happening. And the questions that we were asking folks as we were knocking on doors, the main three questions were, one, what are the issues that you are experiencing right now? What's keeping you awake at night? What are you and your family struggling with? The second question was, what are the real solutions that you want to see to these problems? What would actually make a difference for you? And then the third question was, who do you see having the power to actually bring those solutions to life? Who could do something about this? And regardless of political ideology or affiliation, regardless of income level or race or other demographics, 
two thirds of everybody that we talked to said that guaranteed access to healthcare for everyone, universal healthcare was the solution that they wanted to see. And this is in rural Western North Carolina in a mill town. And so when we stripped the solutions away from the partisanness and from the big media messaging, we actually found that there was a lot of alignment on the solutions that folks wanted to see. The top two solutions that were mentioned in the thousands of doors that we knocked on were universal health care and raising wages and benefits. And so to answer your question, Amy, I think that in a way, when it comes to changing minds, we have the most success when we actually just ask people for their take on things. And then where we see the roots of the big divisive messages, the racial scapegoating, the economic desperation really taking hold in folks, we ask them again about their personal experiences with those things. And more often than not, we find that when folks have a chance to share their personal experience, to share their struggle and their vision, and to step into imagining an alternative reality than the one that we've been presented with, and one in which they aren't feeling as if they're being painted as a bad guy, even when they're in their own struggle, that folks are actually far more aligned with us, and there's not a whole lot of mind changing. That needs to happen. You know, a couple of examples. One of the people that I talked to when I was knocking on doors in 2017 was a man who was a pretty like stereotypical Appalachian man, right? Like he was drinking a Budweiser in his lawn chair with his work boots still on just after five o'clock when I rolled up to knock on his door and started asking him these questions that I mentioned. And his view, his worldview was very aligned with mine. He understood he had been working at the local mill for like three decades, had been in the union and had witnessed the state government break down the union power and really do everything they could to bust up the unions. And because of that, he had seen how workers didn't have the power that they had once had. And he also understood that wages needed to go up and that there needed to be some kind of universal childcare or pre-K. He told me about how he was raising his grandchildren because his daughter was a single mother working at the local McDonald's for poverty level paychecks. And so all of this was very aligned with my worldview and my politics. And then we got to the issue of the overdose crisis. And what the man then shared with me was really regurgitated Fox News statements about how our brown immigrant neighbors were responsible for the overdose crisis, the opioid crisis that our Oof. communities are experiencing right now. And, you know, it took a lot of self-control <laughs> to not immediately jump in defensiveness and tell this man how wrong he was and how racist that was. But instead, what I did is I got like he sounded really angry when he started talking well, you about you can't you can't tell them that they're wrong in those exactly. situations and just expect that to work, even though it seems obvious to someone who's on our side of the politics and has seen the things that we've seen, knows things that we know. It seems obvious to just say, well, that's wrong. That never exactly. works, uh, which is actually something we were talking about on the, the live show this last week. You know, a lot of this, these kind of political beliefs, they're like a ladder. You're seeing the top yeah, of the ladder. Every, um, listeners, check out homeism. Really <laughs> nice philosophy. We were introduced to it on the live stream last week. Yeah, always, always go check out our friends at Ain't Shit Show, always. Uh, but anyway, um, these kinds of toxic beliefs are like a ladder. And when you're talking to these people and they say something horrible like that, you're looking at the top of the ladder. And if exactly. you try to address the top of the ladder, it doesn't work because that's not where the beliefs start. So you have to, you have to try to, as much as it sucks, to be dealing with a person who's saying something awful like that if you want to actually deal with them you need to figure out where that ladder starts for them what's what's the core fundamental belief that leads them yes. to believe this horrible thing 
oh my gosh, Kennedy, I couldn't have said it any better myself. And so that's what we set out to do. And that's what changes the hearts and minds. And with this person in particular, he was so angry when he was talking, when he was regurgitating these talking points. And there was obviously some personal pain that he was experiencing. And so, you know, I shared my personal experience of losing a cousin to this crisis it was in a combination of substance use and domestic violence and shared the details of that story and then said, hey, you're really angry about this. Is there something that you've gone through that you wouldn't mind sharing with me? And then he told me what his real experience was, which was totally in contradiction to these Fox News talking points, which was that he had a friend who had a surgery who was prescribed three different kinds of painkillers after that surgery, who didn't receive any sort of counseling for alternative pain management or preparation for narcotic use, and ended up addicted to those painkillers, continued doctor shopping so that he could make maintain his prescriptions after they ran out. And then when he could no longer get prescriptions, he turned to street drugs and didn't have a supportive community to provide harm reduction for him in that time. And so ended up going through a really harmful spiral of substance use. And for all intents and purposes, this guy that I was talking to had really like lost his friend. He was grieving his friend. And so after I validated that and was like, wow, I'm really sorry. That's really shitty. And you and your friend should not have had to go through that. I then said, it makes me so mad that those doctors who wrote those prescriptions didn't prepare your friend for that possibility. And suddenly he said, well, why would they? Big Pharma is making so much money off of these doctors writing those prescriptions. They don't want them to prevent folks from getting addicted. And all ah. of that righteous anger that he was holding got redirected from immigrants to Big Pharma. And he went on this like 10 minute long tangent about Big Pharma and all that they are doing that's harmful for our community. And it was like, all he needed was someone to say, yo, your pain is real. It's valid. I see it. I see you. And what's behind, what's going on here? What's behind the scenes? And give him the chance to recognize that truth for himself. Yeah. Isn't there maybe a, a more systemic group that holds power that is responsible as opposed to a group that doesn't hold power that you're trying to blame? Yeah. Can we look up instead of looking out? Well, and I think this is the this is the emotional labor and the physical labor that is meant when we talk about our responsibility as white people to defuse white supremacy. Yes, uh, withhold my own anger, sit in my own discomfort, <laughs> so that I can make space for hopefully some potential breakthroughs, maybe some healing that allows this other white person to move through this cognitive dissonance and see the world in a more truth-based perspective. Yeah, there's other opportunities for our anger. Let's be real. We don't have to yeah, be angry 24-7. Yeah. There's so many opportunities to be angry. <laughs> yeah. I think this podcast is one big lesson that I should call my uncle and apologize. <laughs> I mean, maybe. We did a whole episode about talking to your family around holidays and whether or not That's it's worth it. And basically, her. the answer we came to was maybe. <laughs> it depends. Uh, it's always, it depends. I do want to kind of get into, though, because this is something that we do talk about a lot, um, and it's something that I think your story just really perfectly addressed. It seems to me a lot, and I'm curious if this has been your experience, that actually talking to a lot of average conservatives, not alt-righters, but just average conservatives, they are kind of easier to bring around to a progressive mindset in some ways than certain other groups because they recognize that the system isn't working, that there are huge things that are wrong. Whereas sometimes talking to liberals, 
you kind of get more of an attitude of the system is fine. Shut up. I, have you had some of that with your organization? Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's kind of like the way that I see it is like a charity mindset versus a like actual systemic justice mindset, right? And that was part of also what burnt me out with electoral organizing in the Democratic Party is that it was so full of like middle class retired white folks who didn't actually have an assessment of the systems that were maintaining the issues that they were harping about and trying to get people to care about. And so it is so much harder to see folks who are liberal because they want to be a good person and liberal for the sake of others, if you will. (laughs) than folks who are experiencing a struggle that the the conservative party has capitalized on and who we can also point out and validate their struggle. And I think when I have organized with more like middle-class liberals in the past, what has happened is it's been like, oh, we should provide like charity services to folks, right? We want to do, we want to make ourselves look good by stuffing backpacks full of food for kids at the local school. But we don't want to actually address the fact that one in three kids in our county is going hungry for a reason (laughs) and that that reason is systemic. And at Down Home, when I talk to folks who are more conservative, I think, yeah, they are so, like pointing out in my story, they're so angry because of what they've experienced that it's much easier to get them to direct that anger at powerful systems than it is for folks who are sort of facing with the status quo and just want to change enough to say that they did some good. Yeah, I just want to say my own experience living in North Carolina for about 10 years and uh, Amy and I lived in the same area for most of that time and she knows exactly what I'm talking about and can probably weigh in as well. Our egg days. (laughs) Back in the egg days. That makes sense on more than one level, but it's a joke that no one else is hardly going to get. So, Um, (laughs) because eggs, farming, eggs, transitioning. Anyway, um, uh, so what I found a lot was that there were a lot of local, rural kind of like good old boy attitude type farmers that were more willing to do some of like the mutual aid stuff that like we were into out there than like a lot of the liberals who wouldn't turn out for anything. Oh, but would drive to everybody's houses to make sure they were registered to vote. They made time for that. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I mean, in my experience, what I have seen from my Appalachian community is that the reason we've survived this long is because of our own mutual aid efforts and like internalized community structures. So I think that makes a lot of sense yes. to me. And I think the other thing about elections <laughs> and why my theory, this is not proven by any sort of science, but my theory as to why there are folks who are willing to go door to door, make sure people are registered and who are hungry for the votes and that sort of transactional relationship with the system is because it's so simple, right? Like it's like you have a number, you're you're trying to hit that number. If you hit that number, you elect a candidate and lo and behold, everything is fixed. Like you've hit your goal. And the truth is, and I think everyone on this call knows that it's not that simple. It's really messy. It's really uncomfortable, just like that conversation was that day with that man. And it's a long-term game and it's not black and white. And it takes a lot of hard conversations, a lot of uncertainty and ambiguity at times. And it's bigger than elections. It's at this point, we're in a place where it's becoming cultural, right? Like we have to talk to folks who are in this more conservative mindset in order to prevent them from going further down the rabbit hole into that space of the alt-right where there is no longer any, I don't want to say any hope, but where it becomes so much significantly harder to come back from that. 
Definitely. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about how Downhome NC is organized? Like, what's what's your organizational structure look like? Because you've got a really widely dispersed and well-participated in organization. Yeah, um, great question. So, like I mentioned earlier, we have five physical chapters that are county-based, and that's how we got started. So when I was knocking on these doors, I was doing that in Haywood County, which is kind of west of Asheville for folks who aren't from the area. And one of my colleagues, another community organizer, was out in Alamance County doing the same thing. And Alamance is outside of the Greensboro area. Lots of shady shit happening in Alamance County. If folks are not familiar, just Google Alamance County, North Carolina, and a whole slew of not exciting news will come up. So we then started chapters in those two counties based on what we heard from folks in those surveys. So we in Haywood County got to work on wage campaign where we won a wage increase for the town employees of our local municipality out here to a living wage and started campaigning for Medicaid expansion because it's been over a decade now and North Carolina still hasn't passed Medicaid expansion. And then in Alamance County, they had more attention on the criminal justice system. So they started campaigning around a bail fund. And then from there, we ended up expanding over the course of the last three, three and a half years. And now we are in Haywood and Jackson counties and Madison counties in Western North Carolina and Alamance and Cabarrus counties out in the Piedmont. And each of these counties has both local campaigns. So in Haywood County right now, we are working to advocate against a $16 million jail expansion that the local sheriff's department is trying to put into place and trying to get those funds. We are fighting to get those funds reallocated into an alternative budget that goes towards services and prevention. And in Alamance County, the local campaign is looking more at like second chance housing ordinances and basically getting the box off of housing applications over whether someone has been convicted of a crime. And then in all of our communities, it, it just looks a little bit different. Madison County, they have a campaign going on around the way that the local trash is taken care of, the waste systems are, are being conducted. And then we also all work together on a statewide scale to combat issues on a much larger scale. So actually today, my friends and colleagues in the Piedmont are out taking action in Raleigh on behalf of our People's Budget Campaign. And this is actually a campaign to have all of the unallocated funds from North Carolina distributed into a budget that actually addresses North Carolina's needs right now through community health care housing worker protections, which is over $5 billion that could be spent on our families, our neighbors, our communities. And so we have these five chapters that take on local issues. And then we do these statewide campaigns that combine our voices and our power to make a bigger impact. And then what I am doing, which is a new endeavor, is I'm trying to figure out a way to provide the skills, the tools, and the resources to the 20,000 folks that follow our work across the state that don't live in one of those five places where we have a chapter so that folks can start building chapters of their own and start joining this effort as we look towards 2022 and the Senate seat that's going to be up and the end of Roy Cooper's final term in 2024, et cetera. And so in addition to these local campaigns that we run on issues with very clear end goals that would improve the lives of folks in our local communities, we also do get involved in elections. We see elections as a tool in our tool belt, but not 
not the end all be all. So in Alamance County, we were part of the effort that contributed to electing the first ever Latinx member of the North Carolina General Assembly, Ricky Hurtado. And this year we'll be looking at our municipal elections and making sure that our city councils have folks that are sitting on them that are going to support our black and brown neighbors, our LGBTQIA folks, and make decisions that are in the best interest of all of our community members. Yeah, and that's really important. I mean, something we love to emphasize on this show is that, you know, if you go down the list and literally y'all have been doing this as an organization, which is very good, and ask people, what are some of your top issues? And then you got like a top 10 list of issues for your county. Seven out of 10 of them would be things decided by your city council and county clerks and county commissioners and people like that, not the president of the United States. <laughs> exactly. Well, and you know, it's no coincidence that there's so much media attention and hoopla around the presidency when that's really like more or less a distraction and a way to prevent people from putting the amount of focus that they should put on these local elections. All politics is local. Exactly. Uh, unfortunately, we do know that sometimes if people do start to really pay attention to their local elections, the corporations will start to catch up and pay attention to those elections, too. So you can't get ever complacent with building this kind of power, but it is a very real, tangible kind of power. We have a number of friends of the show that uh, have either done this kind of thing or been working towards this kind of thing. And like most notably, one of our friends of the show, Mariah Parker, is a county commissioner in Athens, Georgia, and uh, has been able to literally save lives during the pandemic because of having the ability to help make the decisions for how her county would handle things. And so exactly. just having one truly progressive voice in your local politics can make this massive difference that people don't really understand until it's there sometimes, yeah. especially because I think so many liberal politicians pretend that they are that too. Exactly. Yes. And I think, you know, the way that I see it is like so in the way that's sort of been portrayed in this larger media narrative is like this umbrella view, like, oh, if we elect the perfect president, if we elect these people at the top, then it's trickle down, right? Like trickle down progressivism or liberalism, like we will all feel the impacts of that. When my view is actually like the opposite, where it's like, if we're all working in our local communities to get people elected locally who are aligned with our values, then those values will rise to the top. Like if there are a hundred counties in North Carolina and our state legislature is super backwards and fucked up and we know they won't act on our interest because they failed to expand Medicaid for over a decade now. But if we could get local people in office in all 100 counties in North Carolina who could then assert their values and hold our General Assembly accountable in different ways, like the power dynamics just totally shift if we're all focused on creating a blanket effect from the ground up. Yeah. And we probably can't fix all of our problems through electoralism, but anybody who has lived in these kinds of rural places know that poverty creates a lot of unnecessary problems that could be fixed by electoralism. Exactly. I want to ask about the um, Alamance County Bail Fund. Mm -hmm. So uh, that seems like, I mean, it sort of describes itself as sort of one of the particular programs that arose out of listening to a particular area's needs. Am I mm -hmm. reading that correctly? And can we talk about that, how that kind of evolved? Yeah, absolutely. So I was working in Haywood County, so I wasn't hands-on involved in this. And we definitely need to have some of my colleagues back so they can talk more about their experience with the work. But yeah, similarly in Haywood County, though, a sort of mirror project that happened is a harm reduction program 
was born out of what was expressed as the needs of folks here. And so, you know, as we were going around door to door and hearing from people the solutions that they wanted to see, we kind of had to work our way backwards from the big solutions that people gave us, right? So two thirds of everyone said, we want healthcare for everyone. We, at Down Home, we have five chapters. So universal healthcare in the United States of America is not something that we probably have the power to make happen right now. So we have to sort of work backwards from there. And in Haywood County, that combined with another top issue that had been raised, which was the overdose crisis, led to the harm reduction clinic. In Alamance County, a top issue that had been raised was the criminalization of the poor, which is really what we call like folks going to jail for petty shit. And then also folks who are stuck in jail because they can't make their bail. And one of our directors at Down Home, who actually I think we should absolutely have come back, her name is Dreema Caldwell, is someone that we met at Down Home and who helped form that bail fund group and that project because she she had a personal experience where she, as a Black woman, was facing charges that were shared with other folks who were not Black women. And those other folks' bail was posted at a significantly lower number than Dreamas. Mm. And because of that, Dreama was stuck behind bars as she was awaiting trial. And there was a big situation where folks ended up in debt helping her to get out, etc. And, you know, because of that, Dreama ended up really passionate about like, oh, this is just another piece of the criminal justice system. But people in general being criminalized for being poor or black or brown, this is another piece that really needs to be addressed right now. And so in the larger scheme, Down Home started looking at things like, okay, well, how can we end cash bail straight up, right? But in the short game, as we wait for that, what's going to provide the most harm reduction in this moment? And that was a bail fund. And so they, it's a mutual aid effort, right? Like they raise money from within the community to support people from within the community. And members are the ones who decide if we have to make a choice on where the money is spent, because we only have so much money, our members lead the way in making those decisions in a way that's aligned with their values. Awesome. 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 So I noticed that on your Facebook, you do actions pretty frequently and you often do a little live broadcast with them. How has that been for outreach as, as a strategy? Yeah, I think so. We're getting back into a world where we can do in-person live actions more frequently. And I'm excited to see what I think there's going to be a change because this last year has has drastically shifted so much as far as the world at large goes, but also in particular community organizing and how we organize digitally and how we bridge the online and offline worlds. And so I think though that live streaming our events is definitely successful at, if anything else, creating a sense of community for folks who can't be on the ground with us at all times. At Down Home, we really try to meet folks where they are. So like you were saying, Amy, like we have a lot of direct actions pretty frequently, a lot of meetings frequently, a lot of different teams and a lot of different campaigns happening. And part of that is so that folks are able to join as they can and they and that they're not limited to, oh, there's only one meeting on Mondays and they only do one action a month. So I can't make it to that. But I think for folks who still can't make it because they are raising a family and working multiple jobs and they maybe their values are aligned with us, but they have neither the time nor energy or other resources to actually show up and be a part of it in the way that they want to. And so I think what the live stream is successful at is for one outreach, yeah, and getting folks intrigued that might not otherwise stumble across our work, but really giving a space to, for folks to plug in who can't be there in person, who can't contribute in that way and make them feel like, oh, they can also be a part of this movement or follow along with it and show their support by giving us a like. And, you know, me as a community organizer, what I have found is great about the digital era is that it's really enabled me to give a role to everyone, no matter how long 
large or small. So there are some folks who get involved with Down Home who show up to every working group meeting who are involved in as many campaigns as possible. And then there's other people who have literally said to me, I just want to help you out on social media. What can I do? I am tired and I don't have the energy for more than that. And so it's really enabled me to give them a way to contribute by saying, hey, when folks um, message us, when they reach out to us, can you help me follow up with them and bridge that gap between the online behind the screen and the real life organizer? So uh, you've gotten a lot done in the last couple of years and you had a whole plan for the 2020 elections and, you know, things going on with that. Do you have big plans coming for 2022 or 2024? Well, I mean, I don't want to give away any secrets, you know? I don't want any trolls to, like, steal our game plans. Um, well, but... can you drop hints? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we do know that Burr seat is up for re-election next year, which is very exciting. And we know that Roy Cooper's term, his final term, will be up in 2024. And so we have run some really phenomenal candidates at Down Home in the past. Dreama Caldwell ran for county commissioner in Alamance and won the primary against like the democratic establishment out there. So that was really sick. And so I don't want to say that maybe, you know, Dreama Caldwell will run for governor, but if I had my way, that would definitely be what happens. But, you know, for real plans, we definitely have our eye on the Senate seat and the governor seat looking forward. But then furthermore, for folks who don't have this kind of organizing happening in their own community right now, what I'm really excited about in our future plans, actually outside of the elections, is we're expanding our chapters. We're building new chapters and it actually is taking a volunteer effort to make that happen. I'm not gonna be doing it, but folks in their own communities are doing it. And so we're, we've launched this project called the 10,000 Rural Voices Project, where we're essentially replicating that community listening survey that we did back in 2017, but we're doing it on a much larger scale and trying to talk to 10,000 people across the state. And folks who are like, I wanna organize in my community. I'm hungry for this. I've been waiting for it. The systems are letting me down and no one else is gonna do it except for me. Well, if they wanna help, I can teach them how to have these sort of like intentional conversations with folks in their own community to ask good questions and then they can start there to build their own chapter and we work with them and make it happen and so i'm really excited to hopefully be expanding our power from like five to maybe i don't know 15 20 25 down home chapters maybe we will take over the whole state sometime soon but that's the direction that we're headed I want to ask a little bit more about the listening project before we have to wrap this up, because we've heard it mentioned several times in this. And I have to say, it sounds a lot like other things that I've heard about in particular movements over the years that have been really successful for generating a sort of, to use the word, not necessarily entirely literally, sort of revolutionary spirit of political activity, always like a literal, like political revolution. But but when you do this kind of activity where you actually go to the communities, you talk to them, you listen, you work with people directly, and you hear from the people that are unheard from, it can really create a sort of political energy that just doesn't exist otherwise and can be really transformative. So I'm curious, what was the listening project inspired by? Where did that idea come from? Were there any particular like inspirations that y'all looked to? Or was it just something that just sort of seemed to make sense? Yeah. So back in 2017, I think it made the most sense at the time because Trump had just won his first election. And I had my suspicions as someone who grew up in these communities. The down home was started on the belief of rural communities can't be left out of this discussion. And they currently are being left out. And so if we're going to start anywhere, we have to start with including them, hearing them, 
giving them a voice. And so I think that was really just where we were starting from in 2017. And then it kind of took off from there. I feel like we knew what we were getting into, but it really gave us way more insight than we had ever expected. When we were having these conversations with folks, the most common thing that we heard from people is they would actually stop us while we were asking these questions. And they would say, are you sure you've got the right house? No one's ever asked me before. And that's what we ended up naming the first report. We published a report at the end of that and named it, No One's Ever Asked Me Before. And the consensus that we were hearing from folks through that message was that they truly felt like they did not matter. Damn, I just have to interject real quick and say, I relate to that so much. And I just, I think of all the people I know that always every year, like I've never been in a survey, Mm -hmm. you know, I've never been polled about which candidate I like. Exactly. Exactly. Who are these people that are responding to polls? And, you know, it was even like a deeper message than that, that was like, oh, not that I've even never been polled before, but like, I genuinely do not matter because no one is bothering to talk to me to ask me what's going on in my life. Yeah, that is a that is an essential kind of part of this poverty mindset that gets crafted, right? Is like your your self-denial of agency, you know? Exactly. And if you feel like you don't matter, you're not going to take action in a way that like protects your autonomy, protects your agency. You know, this this movement, I'm struck by a comparison to the early 1900s Menshevik movement um, called Go to the People, mm-hmm. where there was a generation of Russians that were better educated than most and felt like they needed to go to the people and convey that knowledge. And um, I don't know, you're doing a lot more listening, which I think the early Mensheviks did not understand how to do. So maybe this is the 2.0 that actually works. Mm-hmm. They sort of had to learn the hard way that they had to stop talking as much and do a little more listening. And then it yeah. started working, but they didn't yeah. figure that out for a few years. Yeah, like 1903, it didn't work. 1905. Mm. <laughs> so Chelsea, if someone wanted to get involved in an action or anything or just the listening project in general with Down Home North Carolina, what would they do first? Oh my gosh. Well, honestly, the first thing they should do is reach out to me. So my email is chelsea at downhomenc.org. I can give that to y'all for podcast description links or anything that's helpful. And then the second thing they can do is if they live in North Carolina, they can actually contribute to the 10,000 Rural Voices survey and they can share that survey with their friends, their neighbors, and their family. And that can be found at dhnc, like downhome North Carolina, dot info slash 10k Rural Voices. And I can share that with y'all too. Well, thank you so much, Chelsea. Yeah, awesome. All that'll be in the show notes, of course. Chelsea, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an incredible discussion. I'm just really excited thinking about all this. And we'll definitely have to have uh, you and or some other folks from Down Home NC on again in the near future. Oh my gosh. And um, you're going to be back with us on the live stream, right? Wednesday? That's my hope if y'all will still have me. Yes. <laughs> so as a guest commentator, Wednesday. <laughs> That'll be out coming out basically simultaneously with this episode. So should you yeah. fall through a wormhole into the past or future? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But if you, yeah, if you end up listening to this episode and you realize I never saw the live stream, go back. It'll be in our archives on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash not safe media if you forgot. Thank you so much for listening. As 
always, we are Not Safe for Wonks. We are at NSF Wonks on Twitter. Um, YouTube and Twitch is Not Safe Media. Patreon.com slash Not Safe. I know we're not super consistent. <laughs> <laughs> but uh we do our best and uh we appreciate all you out there listening as always remember we are 100 independent media funded by listeners like you and so go to patreon.com slash not safe if you want to be a part of that and help us fund more and more great conversations like this chelsea first once again thank you so much thank you for having me it's been such a good time i appreciate it all right we'll see y'all next time bye 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 bye